All of us are on a journey of becoming, a complicated journey in pursuit of truth and deeper knowledge of the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson and I too am on a journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my journey and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith but it is perhaps one of its greatest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I am your host, Josh Patterson. And I just wanted to share something with you guys really quick before we jumped into our episode today, just in the spirit of honesty. I'm sure some of you uh, listeners who pay close attention have noticed that um, there has been recently, instead of an episode every week, there's been an episode every other week. Um, And also that my engagement on Instagram uh, has been lower than normal, almost um, to non-existent. And I just wanted to share with you guys kind of what, what's happening, what's going on with myself. Um, Just, just briefly. So you know, what's up. Basically the truth of the matter is I have had six or seven episodes lined up um, with really incredible people that I have actually canceled or postponed those. interviews with. And the best way that I can explain it to you guys right now is that the the interviews just didn't quite feel right. It wasn't that the the authors were bad or that I didn't like their work or that their books weren't good or something like that. However, just where I'm at personally, um, it wasn't sitting well uh, with myself. And I felt like I couldn't uh, fully engage with the authors in a way that was fair to them and fair to their time. And so I asked to postpone those things. Um, and same with the Instagram feed. I, I've been in an interesting, interesting place. Um, and so I just didn't want to be super public <laughs> with where I was at. But that's what's going on. Uh, but today uh, I'm excited because I'm recording a conversation um, that is the exact opposite of what I just described. This conversation uh, sits perfectly um, and and feels right with me at this current point in time. And um, I'm more than excited to have the conversation. Actually, Greg, if you guys remember a few episodes back, Greg Farrand, Farrand, sorry, Greg, from Second Breath, uh, set this, uh, actually made this connection for me. And I'm, I'm like I said, more than excited uh, that today I have the privilege of being with Philip Shepard. Phil, how are you doing today? Gosh, I'm just great. Um, 
had a great day and still looking forward to talking with you about whatever might come up for us. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm excited. I've been looking forward to this, um, Phil. I had the the privilege of not fully interacting with you, but um, I produced uh, helping Greg with some some stuff, and I got had the privilege of sitting in on a, a an amazing, a beautiful conversation uh, that you had recently with with Greg from Second Breath, uh, which will I'm sure will be out uh, on their platform sometime in the the near future. Um, but, but Greg introduced me to your work and it was something that just kind of showed up in my life at the right place at the right time. Um, and I have since passed on your work to other people uh, who have greatly benefited from it as well. So thank you today for taking some time to, to hang out. I appreciate it. Pleasure being here. And, and uh, I always appreciate the word of mouth. I think it's the most genuine form of of uh sharing that that could happen mm. ah yes right on cool well, um phil basically there's some questions that um i like to ask our guests just to kind of help our listeners get to know you a little bit better uh, and the the first one is kind of an existential question i guess depending on how you look at it uh but the question is just tell us a little bit about yourself who are you and what do you do um who am i I always i always find who am i a difficult one to answer because it's it it it, it's moving the expectations from a verb to a noun and i really feel like a verb um but um basics i'm i live in toronto um i uh You know, I've had I've had a, a hunger all my life for discovering what is keeping me from my own freedom, and that um, took me on a two-year trip when I was a teenager. Um, it 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 coupled with my love of theater and. I was an actor and a director and a writer in theater. And in acting, um, every exercise you're given as an actor is just another way of exploring how to be present. And I, I have difficulty discerning any difference between being fully present and being fully free. That's, that's, what, it, that's what it means to me. And so I learned about the body. I learned about all the ways in which we in, inhibit our thoughts and our responses and our perceptions even um, by, by consolidating the body. We, we inhabit the body with shadows that dull us to the world. And um, I've always had a really deep curiosity that has led me to read you know, ancient Egyptian works, classical Greek, medieval works, um, just kind of wanting to get a sense of the journey we've made as human beings that got us to this point where we are. And, and the point, you know, if I can speak to that briefly, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, it seemed that all the adults 
in the world around me were living out a fantasy. And they were sort of inviting me to come and join them. It's, you know, you'll do well. It's fun. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't bear it. And it's taken me a long time to understand the nature of that fantasy. But it's, it's a fantasy that drives us as a culture on a large scale. And there are different ways of, of addressing it. One is to say, it's the fantasy of independence. We want to be independent. We're, we're told, you know, independence is, is a good thing. It's what you want. And one problem with that aspiration is that there's no such thing as independence. It just, you, you can't point to one example in the universe of independence. Everything leans on everything. Everything depends on everything. Everything affects everything. And so we are chasing what is a, a mirage. And it's not just an idle or harmless mirage. It's actually the fantasy of the tyrant. Um, I am talking about the tyrant of world mythology, the tyrant that that great mythologist Joseph Campbell described as the man of self-achieved independence. That's how he described the tyrant. You think of that phrase, the man of self-achieved independence. I mean, that's the American dream right there. Self-achieved independence. Ah, what could be better? And, and so we have stuck to this cloying fantasy that has distanced us not from just the world, but from our own bodies and our own true bearing as human beings. I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, no, that's perfect. I love it. Yes. Um, <laughs> goodness. I mean, there's so much, so much there to unpack. And um, I mean, I just, I, when I first read Radical Wholeness and you told the story that you, you referenced early on there in your your answer about taking a bicycle and going what like forever it was from you know correct me um because i feel like i'm going to get it wrong but it, you start out somewhere in like england and somewhere in europe and then went to mm. japan on a bicycle <laughs> yeah I, I got i i i cycled through i started in england and then cycled through europe and the middle east and india and then I, there was a problem because I couldn't, from India, I couldn't go overland through Burma. It was locked up. This was 1973. I couldn't go through China. It was locked up. So I actually had to fly to Hong Kong, then to Osaka, and I cycled through Japan to Tokyo. Man. And why did you do that? <laughs> what, what led you to that, to that journey? It, I was fighting for my life, to tell you the truth. Huh. Um, so here's the thing. In terms of freedom, which I began with, yeah, the most difficult thing in the world is to pose questions to something that you've completely habituated to. How do you even find it to ask a question? So there I was as a teenager drenched in this milieu, in this fantasy, 
and I could feel myself, my essential being, being diminished. I could feel myself um, uh, thwarted and and taken out of relationship, and I was being shaped by a culture that ultimately did not believe in life. Um, and and so I had a choice. You know, I can stay in the culture and continue to fight it. But there's this um, Irish myth about this hero, Cúchelain, and he's, he suffers a deep insult um, at the hands of his king, and he cannot, because of his loyalty, take it out on the king. And so he walks into the ocean with his sword and starts fighting the waves, and he battles them and battles them, and you know what? Eventually they win. Because you can't. And that's the way it felt within my own culture. You know, I was <laughs> I was driven by this rage, this existential rage. I could feel myself being diminished and compromised and lessened. And I couldn't identify the particulars that were responsible for that. So the only way to begin to find my freedom required leaving the milieu and it you know honest to god when i when i left oh you know i'm 18 years old i'm gonna go to england and buy a bike and head off for japan you know there was a cavalierness to that but i didn't fully expect to come back alive i mean i really didn't but but the thing is i thought i knew that if i stayed if I didn't go, that I would certainly suffer a sort of death that was unacceptable to me. Yeah, and that, so as you tell that story, I mean, it reminds me just so you can know a little bit about myself. Um, I recently, um, as recent as, I guess it was March of this year, um, I stepped out of uh, what I had been doing uh, since I graduated college, uh, which was serving as a pastor in vocational ministry uh, within the Christian faith. And the reason for doing so, um, one of the main reasons for doing so was because I felt a similar experience to what you were just describing. Um, words that I was given uh, by our mutual friend, Greg, that seemed to work was that my inner experience, my inner reality and my external reality were not aligned. <laughs> and because of that, um, it was causing all sorts of issues. Um, I was very depressed and um, it, it was affecting my health mentally, physically, uh, spiritually. Um, and I, I got to a, a point where I realized that part of what I was doing was I knew that the current space that I was in wasn't quite right. However, I had so identified with uh, this idea that Josh is a pastor. 
And because my identity was wrapped around this idea, Josh is a pastor. I was living into this uh, idea of who I knew myself to be. <laughs> uh, rather than, um, I don't know, I, it, I felt broken. Um, and leaving that world, um, I started working in a brewery. <laughs> I became a bartender. And uh, things started to realign. Um, but it, it didn't make sense to me at first because I was ditching everything that I had been told would make me successful and happy. I had a job that paid well. I had full salary, benefits, uh, all of those things. I had a fancy title, pastor. I could get up on stage and capture people's attention and they would listen to whatever nonsense I had to say that day. Um, but it wasn't working. And I quit that and I became a bartender and started working for tips with no salary, with no guaranteed funds, with crazy hours. Um, but something seemed to happen. I started to come alive. Uh, my depression lifted and I, I didn't have words to explain it. Um, I think I'm starting to fall into uh, something. Um, that experience was so profound and encountering um, yourself and your story and also um, the books that you have written have been insanely helpful <laughs> um, because I'm starting to, to find myself um, in the story that you're telling, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean everything. Everything you're saying makes sense. It reminds me. There's a line um, in "New Self, New World," my first book, that describes a, a choice that we all face, and that is that you can be who you know yourself to be, or you can be present, but you can't have it both ways, because the present is an unknown. It, it to join the present is to risk the unknown. It's to risk being changed by what you cannot possibly objectively see or or know. And and you know to be present to surrender to that larger reality that holds you in its embrace at every moment is to come home to yourself. Not as a, not as an, a fixed identity, you know, but as a, you know, I started by talking about the self as a verb. You are, you are this node of consciousness, held by the stillness of the world, and all of its energy is coursing through you, and you resonate to that. And you know, there's a. New Self, New World begins by saying we, we suffer from a case of mistaken identity. We, we have so adulated the known. We hold the known up. Not, you know, knowledge is what will save us. 
You have to know who you are and then you'll succeed. You have to know, you know, ha have your business plan and your, and your career mapped out and, and, and know all that. And, and there's a deep error in that belief because what it, what it ignores is that knowledge is toxic. So you look at all, all the major problems that face us. The plastic in the ocean was made possible by our knowledge. The greenhouse gases were made possible by our knowledge. The, the resistance to antibiotics was made possible by our knowledge. The extinction of animals. I mean, if we didn't know how to make a chainsaw, thousands of species would be alive that are now extinct. Um, so knowledge is toxic if it is not counterbalanced by self-knowledge. But we've mistaken what self-knowledge is. We want to pin it down. And, you know, self-knowledge has become like a grocery list, like I'm a pastor and here's my favorite TV show. And, you know, this is what I like to do on Saturday afternoon. And I mean, and but, but self-knowledge isn't a grocery list. Self-knowledge is what is birthed within you as you come into felt relationship with the world. And and there's a real distant a difference between felt relationship and known relationship. So I know that that's a tree outside my window. I know this is a lamp on my desk. In fact, I look around. There's nothing I can see that I don't know what it is. So I don't have to feel any of it. And when I don't have to feel the world, I don't have to feel myself. And so to, you know, to liberate yourself from that attachment to needing to know is to open yourself to the mystery that holds the world together. And, you know, you, I don't think you can feel the wholeness of the world until you can feel the mystery that makes it whole. And it's not a mystery. You know, we, we're intolerant of mystery because of our attachment to needing to know everything. So we think that mystery is something that puzzles us or mystifies us. But, but the larger mystery is a river of information. You are touched by it and awakened by it, and you know yourself and the world as it quivers through you. And you don't know, you can't objectively know any of it, but my gosh, your, the whole of your being recognizes it. Yeah, and, and in order to have the whole of your being recognize it, uh, you first have to be present. That's that the idea of presence. I remember I, I first encountered it reading. Um, oh man, I forget his name. Uh, he's a, a Franciscan monk, and he has a book about or being an ordinary mystic. Mm. Uh, and I, I love the, the ordinary in there. Cause I think that's a little wink. Um, but the present, I, I remembered reading that book and like it, it's so um, it, it kind of started to do something to me because he talked about how um, so often we live these bifurcated lives uh, where either we're stuck in the past or in the future. And he kind of uses this, this story of he went to the airport 
and he accidentally left his car unlocked in the parking garage. And he's on this plane and he's taking off and he remembers, oh my goodness, I, you know, I, I left my car unlocked in the parking lot. And so even though he was flying, you know, up in the sky above everything, he wasn't actually there on the plane. He was back in the parking lot. Um, and he started talking about how so many of our, so many of us live our lives as if we're back in that parking lot um, or perhaps, you know, somewhere out in the future, we're anticipating the next big thing that's going to happen, you know, oh, tomorrow I'm going to, you know, do this great thing, which then we forsake the present moment here, the conversation we're having now, and we don't actually experience it because we're living for this next thing. And the, then, likely, the likelihood is when the next thing arrives, you won't be there for that either. Exactly. We're ready at the next <laughs> Right. Right. And that that really started to, to shake me um, in a good way. And, and also within my perspective as a, as a Christian, I started to realize that the present is the only place where I can experience God where I can have a relationship with uh, the great mystery that, in, you know, is the sustainer or whatever of whatever this experience is. Uh, it's the only place <laughs> because. Yeah, the and, present... and here's a funny thing that when you look at the attributes we assign to God, well, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, all of those attributes belong also to the present. Oh, yes. The present is omnipotent. It, 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 everything that comes into being comes into um, being from the present. The present is omniscient. Everything that happens is felt by everything else. And, of course, the present hmm. is omnipresent. It is always here. never goes away. Yeah. It's the only thing that's eternal. Yeah. Huh. Man, that's beautiful. I, I like that. Hmm. And the, other, yeah. the other thing about... <laughs> The other, thing about, the other thing about the present, if I can say so, I mean, sure. I keep, you know, I keep coming back to our culture because it's taken me a lifetime to extricate myself from, uh, from its assumptions and and hierarchies and ways ways of thinking. But presence, you know, if I say to you, Josh, just just take a moment and just be present. The inclination in response to that request is to start organizing yourself. To, okay, just give me a minute. I'll, I'll, I'll get there. And you start organizing yourself into this imagined state of presence. And it's a, it's a reflex that is deep within our culture. We are, we are obsessed with organizing. There is nothing we do not organize. We organize our bloody emotions. You know, you go, you go, you meet a friend and, and you're already organizing how you will respond to them. We organize our ideas. We organize our relationships. We organize our agendas. I mean, there's nothing we don't organize. And the problem, you know, organization is necessary. We wouldn't have met up for this conversation without it. But when it's an obsession, it becomes impossible to be present because for me anyway, the quality of being present is that experience of feeling yourself 
being organized by the present. This moment seeps into you and informs you and brings you into harmony. It organizes you in a way that you could never aspire to organize yourself. And if you've taken charge of your own organization, you are immune to that. And so rather than, rather than speaking of presence, what I tend to do is I tend to speak about receptivity. That to me, to be fully present is to be fully receptive. And if I'm fully receptive to you, I'm fully present to you. And, and to, to take the emphasis from presence to receptivity invites the question, what does it mean to just receive? What does it mean to just open yourself to your body and the sensations of your breath moving through it and the, the pulse of this present moment? And you don't have to do a thing about it. What does it mean to just open to it and receive it and there you are you're present yeah yeah and in in the present too is where wholeness uh is found although i'm not sure found is the right word uh because i i love how you talked about so often we try to achieve this thing called wholeness um, when more so wholeness is something that's already present wholeness is reality and the 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 kicker there's with the organization bit when we try to organize things um, we're operating out of the intelligence of the brain which is fine I don't want to you know ditch my brain it's important um, but that organization, breaks things down into bits and pieces and chunks so that we can understand and puts them together like a like a puzzle it's an it's an abstraction when we start to think through things here um whereas the intelligence of the body the the felt relationship within um the present moment is is not fractured because it's it's we're not trying to take it apart and organize it and um yeah and that that's been the the real journey for myself because i love to live here listeners i'm pointing to my head they know that about me i love to live here and that was one of the reasons that i um i don't know if this is the right word but why i failed at at or at least i feel (laughs) I failed as a pastor was because I lived here and everything was just knowledge. I knew, I knew things. I had answers. I had ideas. Um, but my answers, my ideas, they didn't align with what I felt. Um, because as you know, always uh, growing up and since being young and such um, one thing that has always been true about myself is uh, I don't mean this pejoratively, but I'm, I'm an emotional person. I feel things very deeply. Um, empathy is definitely something, uh, that I've been gifted with, but maybe a little bit too much. Um, and so I think part of what was happening was I wasn't allowing myself to live into those, to the feeling, um, to the 
yeah, and I tried to break everything down and abstract everything. And then because of that, it did, it didn't align with yeah. what I what I knew here. Yeah, might, I might offer a a, a, a frame of reference that'll okay. show up a little differently. Yeah, sure. Which is um, our culture confuses order and harmony. So so we order something to feel it's harmonious, but that's that's the opposite of harmony. Uh, you know, or, uh, we impose order according to a system of hierarchical ideas that 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 put things in a certain arrangement. Harmony is what happens within an organic whole when every element of that organic whole responds without without hesitation to every other part. And and harmony is what we yearn for. Harmony is what we seek. Harmony cannot be known. Order can be known, but you can't objectively know harmony. You can feel it, but you can never break it down because it is an expression of wholeness. And so when you talk about feeling things deeply, to me, what you're running up against is this wound that's been inflicted in all of us that separates our thinking from our being. That's the primary lesson we take away from 12 years in the public school system. We suppress our bodies. You know, if your body's energy can't be controlled, you get in trouble, you're punished. In my day, you'd get the strap. Um, and on the other hand, you know, if you can fill your head with the right ideas, and give the right answers, you're rewarded. And you you come away, and I remember when I had this belief and acted on it, with the understanding that you can think more clearly if you focus on the head and, and sort of shut down, numb yourself to all that sensation below the neck. And so there's our being on the one hand and our thinking on the other, and they've been sundered. And they belong together. So, so when you say you feel things deeply, the opening, the gateway that waits for you is to feel your thinking deeply, to feel every thought. So as I speak, as I'm thinking, my body is a cavern and my thoughts are resonating through it they're being felt, they're being clarified, and the words arise from that, which is very different. I mean, I can do the other because I'm an actor. You know, I can speak from my head and say a whole lot of really interesting things, and I don't need to feel any of it because I really understand it all. I mean, that's, that's what we're used to hearing, that dissociated voice, that, that concatenation of ideas, none of which is felt. But when you feel your ideas, you also begin to recognize that every sensation in your body is a form of thought. And so suddenly thought is felt and, and, and sensation is thought and they are one thing again. And it's just so much easier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that, that reminded me too, I have a, I have a certain 
kind of voice or register uh, that I enter into um, when I'm preaching or public speaking. And my wife calls it my pastor voice. <laughs> and she'll be like, Josh, you're doing that thing. Like, oh, um, but yeah, that's something. I, I have another name for it. Yeah. Um, I call it presentation mode. Yes. So, so let me, let me trace back to the origin of that, if I may. Absolutely. When, when you are an infant, your existence depends on being loved, being accepted, being approved of. You yearn for that with the whole of your being. And in our culture, we learn very quickly that our wholeness is unacceptable. We're too fussy, we're too demanding, we're too annoying, too whatever. And so we learn to present ourselves in a way that will win that hug, that nod of approval, that smile that is like the nourishment of our being. And we go through life in presentation mode. The essence of presentation mode, the, the driving force behind it, is to manipulate a certain response in the other person. You want them to like you. You want them to approve of you. You, you want them to agree with you. You want them to respect you, whatever it may be. And the bottom line is, you, you can't do it. You can't make another person have a specific response. But still we try, still we present ourselves. And it's such a different thing to drop into your wholeness and come back to presence because the two are like oil and water. You know, you're either in presentation mode or you're present. If you're in presentation mode, you are reaching, you are looking for an outcome. If you're present, you are riding the wave of this relationship and being touched by it with an intimacy that informs your every word. <laughs> and it's, it's so interesting too, because it's, it's at least within my experience, it's, it's so easy to see or feel when somebody is within that presentation mode because when you have a conversation with somebody who is not that stands out big time you're like wow and when when you have a conversation with someone who is in presentation mode it's almost like you can feel their hands trying to mold your response you feel mm -hmm. the expectation of that you feel them reaching um, and demanding a certain way of responding to what you're saying. Yeah, and that, which is so interesting because when I think about as well, like podcasting, mm. for example, when I first started podcasting, um, my goal was I would read these books and then I would find all the stuff that I thought was really great and then I would try to get <laughs> the author to say all the stuff that I thought was really great. And that 
it serves a certain kind of purpose, I guess. Um, but once I had the interview with Rob Bell, where Rob said, Josh, stop, don't, don't do that. <laughs> and, and he basically, he gave me this, this line that has really stuck with me. And he said, Josh, there's an, an invitation in conversation to go deep enough into yourself that the people who you're talking to or are listening to you uh, find themselves there as well. And he encouraged me. It's like, like I said earlier, set aside that nice intellect, the ego of yours, drop down into your heart and feel yourself, feel your way through this conversation. Um, And ever since then, I've, I've really wrestled with that because that conversation meant so much more to me than just inviting on a really great theologian and having them recite their information. And I've gotten feedback from people who would be like, wow, there was something different about this person when you spoke to them. They weren't just throwing their ideas at me. Um, And I found too, even like I interviewed this, this gentleman named N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar and theologian. And I did all the things, just asked him the questions for the information. Um, But at one point I stopped doing that and um, I I dropped down into uh, heart or presence um, and asked a question out of that place. And he lit up. He came alive. His his entire facial expression literally shifted and changed. His body posture relaxed. And there was something different about that. And I've been trying to capture that within conversation. And part of why I haven't been podcasting recently was because I, I didn't feel that I could do that <laughs> because I wasn't fully present. Um, there's a there's a trap in our culture, yeah. and the trap um, has to do with all the emphasis we place on answers and having the right answers. I mean, that's how you get through school is having the right answers. The public school system does nothing to teach us how to ask questions. Um, and you know, you know, I'm I'm, I'm thinking of the the. Um, political movements, the popular upheaval that, that we're witnessing in the world, people feel things and then they hear an answer and they latch on to it without the ability to hold it to account, without the ability to pose questions to it and, and prod it. So we're used to understanding questions intellectually and the value of a question is only um, fulfilled when the answer arrives, when it leads to an answer. But, but there's another side to questioning. There is, a, there is a sort of question that is felt. And it, it, it sort of runs through your soul. And the essence of the deepest questions is never that there is an answer. It's that they begin us on a quest. 
I mean, a quest, there it is in the word question. And, you know, the, the deepest questions, what, what does life mean? What is love? What, I mean, there are no answers to these questions. Um, what am I called to do? Uh, you know, the world summons you and you, you don't have any guarantee that this is, this is going to lead to success. You just know you have to do it. You know you're called to do it. That's like the, the hero's quest. And we are, we are unaccustomed to feeling questions. And if, you know, if you drop down into your body with that sort of tender patience, you will discover questions that are felt. And those are the questions that invite others to feel as well. That, you know, the human condition is just a perplexity and it'll never be, it'll never be undone. But my gosh, you can taste it and experience it and come alive to it without needing to solve it. Yeah, and the, what I've been finding is that when I stop trying to solve life uh, and rather just live, um, something's different. <laughs> Uh, there's, I find when I can accept the present moment and my present reality for what it is and live into that present moment and reality, um, and stop grasping or uh, fighting or or wrestling that that something happens um that's that's rather interesting in places where i where i feel this most deeply is um we went on vacation recently to maine it was my first time there and we went to we stayed in booth bay harbor um and we checked out all sorts of uh you know state parks and uh, the, a botanical garden, which was which was beautiful, um, and we went to this this botanical garden uh, right after. So that morning, um, I had been reading Radical Wholeness, uh, and you had a line in there, something along the lines of how a, a tree implicates the universe, um, and as we were in this botanical garden um, and I was really trying to just be present to what was happening. Um, I felt just such a, a deep connection to everything that was around me in the middle of this forest. And so I went up to a tree. <laughs> it sounds so silly to, for me to say, but I went up to a tree and I, I placed my hand on the tree um, and I took a picture of it because in that space, 
I actually felt the relationship of everything around me of of all things the the interconnectedness the um i love how you you talked about earlier how like you feel like a verb and not a noun um and just the the process of of everything that is going on it just i don't know that that line did something to me and then in that experience within uh nature with a tree trying to be present to the relationality in front of me was just amazing i i don't know i just rambled and <laughs> lost track of where i was going but no but i, I mean it's it, it it's you're absolutely right it's one of the primary differences between surrendering to wholeness and recognizing wholeness in this moment in the present and and retreating into the fantasy that shatters the world into things there are no there are no things there are only processes and and you feel the process of the present like the present isn't something to know it's not an object it is a process and you are a process and the tree is a process and and to feel that life shaped by all the world in you know in response to and communion with the whole of the world um is to help feel yourself as a process illuminated by that relationship with it mm. and and you're not a you know you're not a you're not a process that is in any way separate from anything that is around you and so to feel what is around you and um be open to how the world is whispering to you at every moment to put your gifts into service and no one has ever been born with your unique cluster of gifts it's true for everyone hmm. and the world is is whispering for those gifts to be activated to be put into service and we we lose that when all we feel is things around us yeah and i think that ties back to something too that when I used to teach uh, students, it was just this catchy little phrase that I I, I really liked that um, we were created by relationship for relationship, um, and I think process another good way to talk about process um, is relationship or perhaps relationship and process go together. Um, yeah, and that hmm. uh, all there is is relationship. Yeah, like nothing, nothing exists independent of relationship. Right. We discover who we are through relationship. So, if you want to know who you are, come into the most deeply felt relationship you can with everything around you, and you come into relationship with 
with a, a kid skipping on the sidewalk, with a bird song heard over the hill, with a cloud scudding across the sky, with a blade of grass. You come into felt relationship with each of those, and you are illuminated by it in a particular way. And the more deeply you come into felt relationship, the more who you are is illuminated, not, not by objectively knowing yourself or identifying yourself, but by this confluence of relationship that quickens you to it and awakens you into the fullness of your being. Mm. Yeah, and the word for that experience or awakening that I've been using is like awareness, like coming into an awareness of what really is. And um, for listeners who this language um, will, you know, work with part of, at least where I'm at currently in my own spiritual journey within the lens specifically of Christianity, Jesus always talked about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was at hand and that it was something that you could live into and participate in the here and now. And I think what Jesus was talking about was awareness, was an awakening into reality as it really is. I think Jesus was talking about these things uh, that we have been having conversation about for the past however long it's been uh almost about an hour now um and that shift for myself using because i mean because that's the lens i see things through right that's my experience um and so i use that language but that understanding has um reignited uh something in me because the the Christianity as an intellectual tradition where you just had to have the right ideas and the right beliefs didn't work for me. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I don't think it worked for Christ. For anybody, I'm with you. Yes, I'm with you. Um, and so I, the, I'm, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but. Well, can I offer a, can I offer yes, please. a perspective on please. that? Please. Um, Because to me, Christ was modeling our fullest humanity and our fullest divinity all at once. And and our fullest intelligence. So let me let me let me explain what I mean by that. We, you know, I I speak about our culture having misunderstood so much about who we are. You know, we We've defined intelligence as the ability to reason in an abstract fashion. That, that's a, a definition that just happens to flatter the intelligence in the head. And that's one form of intelligence. But for me, it's a, this one wavelength on a massive spectrum. So if I go to characterize that spectrum, First of all, it's sensitivity. Any sensitivity is a form of intelligence, a sensitivity to the breeze, to a child's tears, to 
birdsong, to music, to literature, to er arithmetic relationships. Any sensitivity is a form of intelligence. Now, the, the impediment or the difficulty with a sensitivity alone is that a sensitivity is reactive. It has to be. If, if the retina didn't react to light, we wouldn't see. And that reactivity has to be grounded in order to become coherent. And so to me, intelligence is grounded sensitivity. And the highest expression of our intelligence is love. I don't understand love as an emotion. Love is a genius. A mother's love for her child bestows upon her an understanding, an attunement to that child that, that no catalog of measurements could ever impart. The genius of love enables us to feel reality in its fullest expression and be as fully present to it as possible. And Christ stands as an embodiment of love. Christ exemplifies the genius of humanity in that ability to feel it acutely in relationship to the wholeness as only love can disclose it. I love it. Um, yet, uh, I mean, I, I don't have words. Um, because what you're describing is something that I feel like I have. I don't, I don't know if intuited is the right word, um, but something that I have intuited but was always kind of told was not right because that, that separation, the, the story um, that our culture tells us, like you speak about in, in great, great lengths um, separated those things for me and said, here's the ideas, the doctrines, the whatever that you have to believe and ignore all of that other stuff. Um, but it, I, I don't know. It just it resonates. <laughs> to use a word that, um, yeah, I've I've grown more and more um, fond of, especially as I've I've heard you talk about the body as a resonator. Um, I I love that, and I I've had um, actually I have a few over here, but I've had uh, some like Tibetan singing bowls uh, for a while, and then I remember. Um, when you spoke with Greg, yeah, you pulled one out and, and used it as a demonstration and that really stuck with me. Um, and so now every morning uh, I try to remind myself um, if that, that's the right way to talk about it, but like have my, my singing bowl and you know, you hit it and it resonates. Um, and I, I try to just become present to that and remind myself that 
uh, you talk about putting cotton balls in there. And I try to remind myself that uh, I, I don't want to live that way. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to experience radical wholeness <laughs> embodiment here in the present. Now, I might I might conclude with one one other. Um, you know, I I seek to liberate myself from misunderstandings, and absolutely, I think that um, beliefs get in the way of faith. Um, if you if you you know if you need to believe something, then then. Then faith isn't really necessary. Faith doesn't rely on ideas. Faith is an attunement. Faith is the ability to feel yourself held by the love of the world in this moment. And and there's no belief that is necessary. And and the more beliefs you pile on, the the less room there is, the more confused faith becomes. Faith is existential. Yes. Yeah. I, I. I. I have found that as well for myself, and and have distinguished between the two, um, faith and belief. Um, and actually, when I kind of started to make that differentiation, I was like, "Oh man, now I have to rename my podcast." <laughs> Because it doesn't quite work, but I, I have not done so just out of, you know, whatever. But yes, um, I think that distinction is is so helpful and um, a fantastic way to, to conclude our time together. So, Phil, thank you so much uh, for hanging out today with some guy you've never heard of. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Um, Thank you for your work. I'm excited. I know you have a new book coming out soon um, that, yeah, I, I heard you talk about it uh, again with, with Greg and then went and looked it up for myself and I'm excited. It, it will be at my house when it comes out. How <laughs> oh, wonderful. So, yes. And, and Josh, it's just, it's been a pleasure getting to know you a bit and some of your story and the questions you're feeling so deeply and, it's it's inspiring. It truly is. So oh, thank you for that. Yes. Well, thank you. That's um, that means a lot. I I appreciate it. Uh, and um, listeners, do yourself a favor. Go check out Phil's work. You can find his his books on Amazon or, or other places. Books are found. Uh, New Self, New World, and Radical Wholeness are the two that are currently out. Um, what's the the name of the new one coming out? Deep Fitness. Deep Fitness, yes. Uh, Deep Fitness will be releasing, is it October? Yeah, October 19th is yes. the release date. All right, wonderful. October 19th, friends. So do yourself a favor. Go and check those out. Um, and as always, thank you guys for hanging out and listening today. Yeah, and I should also, I should oh, also sure. mention, uh, just, I've got a, a website. And it has lots of free stuff on it. And, oh, yeah. Um, I have online courses people might be curious to learn about. Um, Most definitely. It's, it's embodiedpresent.com. Embodied I'd, I'd, love, I'd love your listeners to have a peek at that. Most definitely. Yeah, I will um, put that in the show notes. So listeners, you have quick access. All you have to do is scroll down, click on it, and it'll take you right there. 
All right. Wonderful. Phil, thank you again. Listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, go in peace, guys. Bye.